Thanks, folks. Well, let's pray together. Lord, because you are good, because you are God, we have hope. And Lord, we uh, are grieved again about, seems like every week now, we're hearing news about gun violence and sometimes terrorism. And we're grieved, Lord, at the loss of human life and the instability and troubles of our world. And we just thank you, Lord, that you are good, you are God, you're in control. And we pray for the peace of our community, of our nation. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are a God who also draws near to those who turn to you. So turn our hearts toward you now, Lord. We want to be the people that present ourselves to you and offer ourselves to you. We want to be the people that listen to you and heed your voice. Bless our time as we uh, go into your word and uh, guide us and lead us. Teach us and equip us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, we are starting a new message series uh, today, and uh, you should have received some message notes in your worship program, so you might want to pull those out. Uh, but before we get to that, I have a confession to make. This is my confession today. I have a confession just about every day, but uh, this is my confession today, is I've been very negligent about seeing the doctors. And I, it's actually been several years since I've seen a doctor or had a medical checkup. I know that grieves some of you and alarms some of you. Uh, it's been easy for me to make excuses. Our, we went through some uh, health coverage changes with our church, and I, I had a doctor under the old... Uh, policy. I didn't have a doctor un under the new policy. Uh, it's easy for me to just make excuses like, well, I feel fine. Why should I see a doctor? Why should I get a checkup? I feel fine. Okay, I see some of you shaking your head. Okay, I get that. Um, some people avoid doctors because they're really afraid of what the doctor might say. They're afraid that uh, they might have some illness or something. And, you know, there's almost like a, this, this outlook that says, well, what I don't know can't hurt me, right? What I don't know can't hurt me. And if you really believe that, then you probably believe that ignorance is bliss. Now, when we're thinking soundly, we don't believe that. Right? We don't really believe that ignorance is bliss. And, and, and actually, what you don't know can hurt you. I mean, what if you're, you have no symptoms, but your blood pressure is really high, or your cholesterol levels are off the charts, or something like that? Or, or even more alarming, if there is some malignant cancer growing in your colon or your stomach, uh, if that's the case, you can, you know, be in denial and refuse to face reality, but it doesn't change your condition, and if you don't do anything, your condition is likely to get worse over the passage of time. So when it comes to the physical realm and our physical health, we know that it's vital to know the truth. It's vital to know what's really the facts. And I just want to say that uh, that's also true in the spiritual realm. Uh, it's vital to know the truth. When it comes to our Christian faith, Ignorance is not bliss. We don't want to be the people that say, uh, my mind's made up, don't confuse me with the facts. What you don't know can hurt you. Incorrect beliefs can steer you wrong spiritually, can cause you to embrace false values, can lead you to be deceived. Uh, incorrect beliefs actually abound all around us, and people are being deceived all the time. We're losing, I think, I don't know, maybe this sounds cynical, but I feel like we're losing our ability in this country to discern right from wrong and good from evil 
and truth from falsehood. And it's time to have a checkup on our faith. Now, in your notes there, I put this quote from James Emery Wright, the book that he wrote called The Church in an Age of Crisis. He says this, The most foundational understanding of the culture of our Western world and the future that it portends is that it is increasingly post-Christian. Right? We've heard that phrase, post-Christian. He says, By post-Christian, I do not mean non-Christian. I do not mean anti-Christian. I mean we live in a country that is increasingly losing any memory of what it even means to be Christian. Post-Christian, people are, are ignorant about what the Christian faith is, and uh, that's not just a problem outside the church. Uh, researcher Christian Smith writes in this book he wrote called Soul Searching. He writes that Christianity is being colonized and displaced by a quite different religious faith, and many Christians are not even aware of it. This new faith has been sometimes called moralistic, therapeutic, deism, moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a belief system that embraces the existence of a God who demands little more than being nice with the central goal of life to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God is not particularly needed in daily life except to resolve various problems that may come out uh, once in a while like uh, God's like a divine butler. You call upon him when you need a service done or God is a cosmic therapist to, to kind of patch you up when you're broken. And regardless of religious beliefs, convictions, or commitments, good people go to heaven when they die. That's called moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's a nice religion about a nice God who just wants people to be nice. Well, I hope you recognize that moralistic, therapeutic deism, and it, while it might sound appealing is really taking millions of people down a path of deception. It's a far cry from real Christianity, from true biblical faith. But unfortunately, many Christians are being duped. Here's another quote. This is also on your message notes. Another quote from James Emery White, Wright. He says, In a day when the world is increasingly secular and frequently apathetic, the Christian faith is losing its distinctive identity and content. And it is Christians who are emptying their minds, not in a good way. And yet without a clear embrace of the actual matter of the Christian faith, we will have nothing to offer the world that it does not already have. In other words, Christians are losing their, their identity, their message, their voice, and just settling for just kind of a common denominator kind of religion. And it's because of concerns like this that the pastors and I have decided to... Uh, to launch this new four-week series today. And the series is four weeks. It's called A Faith Worth Sharing. And I, I think there's, there's, there's four things that every Christian, whether you're a new Christian or old Christian, young or old, uh, experienced or not, maybe you're very theologically minded or you're very simple-minded, there's four things every Christian ought to know. And you know what they are? They're, they're right here, right? The, every Christian ought to know what they believe, how to live their faith, they ought to know why they believe and then how to share it, right? What you believe, how to live it, why you believe, how to share it. Those are really important things. So I want you to imagine, let's say, imagine that this is a classroom for a moment and, and I'm the professor and I say, okay, everybody get ready. We have a pop quiz today and we're going to take an exam and here's the exam. How much do you know about those four vital areas of your Christian faith? 
How would you do? How would you do if we tested you on, do you know what you believe? Do you know how to live it? Do you know why you believe it and how to share it? How would you do? And I don't know, if you're, if you're all, at all a little unsettled about that or unclear, then uh, this series is for you. This series is for me, a faith worth sharing. So I hope you'll be with us and you can see those topics. What do you believe? How do you live it? Why do you believe how to share it? Okay, so I hope you're going to be with us. I hope you'll pray for the preparation of the messages as those of us speaking uh, study God's Word and uh, try to put together messages that are going to really be helpful to equip you. Now, while we need to be aware of false teaching, uh, today I want to talk about what know what you believe. And, you know, there's a lot of false teaching, but but the best approach is not just to study all the false teaching and false doctrines and false religions. Uh, the best approach is to know what we believe. Uh, I, I heard this, that uh, this is the way the federal government and banks, this is the way that they train people to spot counterfeit money, to recognize counterfeit money. Uh, rather than expose trainees to countless counterfeit bills, this is what they do. They make the trainees very, very carefully examine genuine bills. They examine them visually, they examine them in terms of how they feel, and the features of genuine currency that are most difficult to duplicate, they study those especially. And then when these new recruits, these new trainees, are presented with a counterfeit bill, they immediately recognize it's bogus because they know what they're measuring that bill up against, the reality, the reality. So that's what I want to say here, is that it's so important for us to be clear on our reality. On, on our faith and our basic doctrine and our message so that then we can spot counterfeits and, and we can be discerning people, but also we can have a boldness to share our faith because we know what we're talking about. And I think that we will understand uh, in a way that's going to help us devotionally to draw near to God as we know God for who he is and what he's done and what his plans for us are. Now, if you turn that message outline over on the other side, there's this, uh, this whole teaching called First Steps to God, and uh, I didn't come up with this. I got it from a university and from a book, uh, but this has been very helpful for me, actually not just for this week. For a number of years, I've used this outline, and I found it really helpful because uh, I think we all need a very clear, concise way to understand our faith so that it makes sense to us, but also so that we could actually talk about it with other people. And so I found this very helpful, and I want to kind of just go through some of it today, Okay. So there, you could see there's five big issues here. God, people, Christ, response, and then cost. And I want to just talk about uh, each of them a little bit. First of all, we start with God. And I found this when I'm on mission trips in China, and we often get to, to share the Christian faith with people who have no Christian background, who don't know there's a God, who don't believe in God, who've never heard about God or Jesus, and they've grown up, uh, you know, deep in atheism, and that's all they were taught at home and in school. But now many of them, they're young adults, they're young professionals, or they're graduate students, and they're really spiritually hungry and empty. And when we have these discussions, this is what I've, I've discovered, is that if I just start talking with them about Jesus, and Jesus came as a Savior, and he died for your sins, it doesn't really make sense. They have no context. They, they have no framework in which to understand that. So what we've been finding is that usually it's more, more helpful to start not with Jesus, but with God and creation. You know, if you don't even know, you know, there is a God, then to say that Jesus is the Son of God obviously doesn't make much sense. So we start with God. 
uh, we start with God and we start with creation. We start with things about how God, there is a God who created the world and how God loves you. You know, John 3, 16, right? God so loved the world that he gave and he took action. So God loves you. A lot of people don't know there is a God, but they, they fear that if there is a God, he's probably mad at me. He probably doesn't like me. I'm probably insignificant to him. He probably is, you know, is uh, down on me for all the sins I've had or all the times I've neglected him. Or, or maybe he's like some strict father and he's always disappointed in me that I didn't do good enough and I didn't measure up. And you know, People have all kinds of notions. So we have to start here with God created everything in the beginning it was, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We start with God as the creator, and this, this God is not just a, a harsh dictator, not just an impersonal force, but God is a person, and God loves you. And God is not only loving, but He's also holy and just. He punishes all evil. He expels it from His presence. That's because His nature is perfect. His nature is holy. A lot of us studied Romans earlier this year, and in Romans 1.18, it says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness, all the godlessness and wickedness of human beings who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Sometimes we don't, we don't want to talk about this, but, but the Bible talks about this a lot, that there is such a thing as the wrath of God. And it doesn't mean like, oh, God just flew off the handle and lost his temper and and uh, lost control of himself. The wrath of God is God's opposition to all that is evil, all that is wrong, all that is sinful, because he is holy, he is opposed to all of that. So we need to understand both of these things, that God is a creator who is loving, but he's also the God who is holy and just, and he punishes evil and expels it from his presence. He cannot tolerate it. So we start here. A good God created a good world, but now the world is messed up, right? Now the world is broken. It's abnormal. It's fallen. So now we go to people. People. Who are people? Are we just the product of the accidental collision of atoms and molecules over millions of years? And, and what resulted was us. And a lot of people want to believe that or they think that. That's a presupposition. You know what a presupposition is? It's a belief that can't really be proved. We all have presuppositions. Most of us don't know where we caught them. I think you catch presuppositions like you catch a cold. You, you know you've got it, but you don't know where you got it. Uh, but, but think about this. Uh, you can presuppose that there is no God and the world as we know it is just a big cosmic accident and it's all happened by chance through impersonal forces and you can have that presupposition. You can't prove it, but you can believe it. Or you can have the presupposition that, that behind the universe there is a God, a creator, a creator God, a personal God. Now, you can't really prove scientifically either of those presuppositions, but I want you to think about this. Which presupposition makes best sense of the world as we know it? And if, and if I believe that everything is just purely a cosmic accident and, and collision of atoms and molecules in some random sequence, then I can believe that, but you know what? I can't really live with the consequences of that. If I were to carry out that, that, that view consistently, I would have to conclude there is no meaning to life. There is no significance. You know, I was in Hawaii this past week uh, with my family visiting my, my, my wife's parents as well as my son-in-law's parents. And uh, it was a good time. And I, there's a lot of things I like about Hawaii, but you know what I hate about Hawaii? Cockroaches. 
In fact, my wife, who spent a lot of time in Hawaii growing up, every other summer she'd spend the summer in Hawaii, but she says, I, I don't want to live in Hawaii. You know why? Cockroaches. And, and there were occasions, maybe, I don't know, maybe 10 occasions or so in the week that I was there that I killed a cockroach. And, and you know what? I had no sympathy. <laughs> I had no compassion. In, in my view, they don't have a right to be in the house, you know. And if they're outside, I'll let them live, but... Now, the reason I bring that up is because in my worldview as a Christian, there's a huge difference in the dignity and worth and value of a human person and a cockroach. The Bible tells me that, that I and you are made in the image of God. And therefore, we have a incredible dignity and worth and significance. And we have the ability to relate uh, not only to each other, but, but to our Creator. Because humankind alone is created in the image of God. So I have a valid basis for saying that my life is worth more than a cockroach. Do you? I hope you do too. But if all we are is the product of the impersonal matter plus time plus chance, there's no basis for saying that you're of any more value, your life is of any more significance than a cockroach's. There's no real meaning to saying to somebody, I love you. What is that? It's just a construct of our imagination. So we got to start here. God, there's a God who loves you, and that God is holy and righteous and, and good. And God made people, people in his own image. He made us for himself to find our purpose in fellowship with him. He made us in his image. Colossians 1 says, in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So God is the creator of everything. So it's not just an accident. It's not just impersonal. It's not just meaningless. God is the creator of everything, and he made us in his image for himself. The other thing we need to know about people, though, is that people have rebelled and turned away from their creator the result is separation from God, and the penalty of that separation is eternal death. And you know some of these passages. Isaiah 59 is very powerful to me. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on, on the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. And then Romans, uh, Isaiah 59 too, Your iniquities, your sins, your trespasses have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And then Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have to know this about ourselves, that we are people of incredible worth and dignity and value, but we also have to know that we are fallen, rebellious, broken, and sinful. Where are you going to understand that? Where are you going to get that from, from another worldview? You know, some people want to exalt humankind as the apex of creation, and yet, then how do we explain the terrible evil and man's inhumanity to man and our violent tendencies and our inherent selfishness? It doesn't make sense. The Bible describes it this way. We're made as the crown of creation in the image of God, but we have fallen from our position through our own rebellion and sinfulness and selfishness. That makes sense. It's not a pretty picture, but it makes sense. It makes sense to me. So, as a result, we are lost in our sins. 
As a result, our good works, our good works are inadequate to span the gulf created by sin. So I was thinking about this like uh, on Wednesday, I flew back from Honolulu to Seattle and I think it's about a five or six hour flight and everything went good, everything went smooth. But imagine this, imagine this, that all the planes are broken and you're in, you're in Honolulu and you need to get back to Seattle before the Seahawks season starts and the only way to get there is if you were to swim. Now, that's a long swim. How good a swimmer are you? I imagine some of you could get pretty far, a couple miles, maybe a few miles, and some of us would be drowning after 100 yards. But imagine you had to make that swim. Some people would get further than others, but I will tell you this, I can guarantee you this, nobody's going to make it. Nobody's going to make it. The, the, the gap is just too wide. The distance is just too far. This is what the Bible is saying. You know, religion is people always trying to appease God, always trying to earn, their, earn God's favor, justify themselves, and, and do enough good work so that God will, you know, give them blessing. And that's, religion is all about that. But religion is like you trying to swim from Honolulu to Seattle. Some people can do more good work. Some people are more righteous. But everybody's going to fall short. That's what the Bible is saying. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And so that's a, that's a sad plight we're in. It's a terrible situation. Now, every good story has plot tension, right? And I believe the Bible is the greatest story of all. And it's not just a, a fairy tale or a legend. It's a true story. But it, it has tension running throughout it as well. And, and here's part of the tension, is that uh, God created people for good, and yet they've fallen from that good position and that good relationship. How are they ever going to find their way back? And there's a tension that drives the narrative forward. Here's another tension in the plot. Uh, the, the tension is this, that God is a God of holiness, God is a God who is holy and righteous and just, and therefore he opposes evil, injustice, and everything wrong. But also God is a God of love, and he, and he loves his people, and he enters into relationship with people, but these people are fatally self-centered. And, and will God bring down the curse that, that we deserve that must fall on sin, and will he cut off his people? Or will he forgive and love his people regardless of their sin? And, it, you know, if he does either one only, if he only brings down the, the hammer to judge us in our sin, or if he only just, just forgives us and overlooks our sin, in either case, sin and evil win. I mean, sin and evil win if, if, if it's allowed to destroy us and our relationship with God. But also, if, if, it, if it just doesn't matter and it has no significance, then, in, in a sense, sin and evil also win. So here's the thing, that it seems impossible to do both, and yet if there's to be any hope, somehow both have to be done. God has to deal with sin and evil and, and judge all that's wrong, and yet somehow he has to also uh, extend his love to fallen, broken, fatally selfish people. So this is our dilemma, and, and that whole dilemma and that whole tension drives the narrative of the Bible forward. Then it finally comes to a point where God sends his son, right? You know this story, right? God so loved the world that he sent his son, his only son, Jesus, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So we need to know something about Christ. 
And really, our, our faith is all centered in Jesus. It's not just God talk. It's not just generic spirituality. It all comes down to Jesus and who is he and what did he do and is he real? So here's some things we have to know about Christ. There's a lot we could say here, but we have to know at least these things, that God became human in the person of Jesus Christ to restore the broken fellowship, and Christ lived a perfect life. Very important, very important. Uh, God became human in the person of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1, it says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. The God the Father was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And then 1 Peter 2 says Jesus was the only perfect human being that ever lived, the only sinless person. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So Jesus was the only person who actually lived a sin, sinless life, who lived the kind of life that we were meant to live, but we have been unable to do so. And then Jesus died as our substitute. He paid the penalty, the death penalty for our rebellion, and he rose, he was resurrected from the dead, and he's alive today to give us a new life of fellowship with God now and forevermore. I want to read one of my favorite verses that kind of fits with this, and it's Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And it says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know that verse? I'll tell you why that means so much to me. It says, this is how God demonstrated his love. While we were still sinners. You know what? That's like saying, while we were at, at war with God, while we were his enemies, while we were indifferent to him or hostile to him, while we were distant and uncaring and unbelieving, God did this incredible thing. He sent Jesus and Jesus died for us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve it then. We don't deserve it now. We did nothing to earn it. There's no way we can pay him back. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God shows his love. That's how much he loves us. So then Jesus says, you know, there are some people that come into this world or come into your life, come into your social circle or your work circle, and they really want to use you, abuse you, rip you off, exploit you, right? He says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I've come, in contrast, to give you life. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full, to the max, that they might have it abundantly. So we need to know this about Christ, that God became human in the person of Jesus. Jesus was fully God and fully human. Fully, fully man. It's not like he was 50% God and then 50% man, but he's fully God and fully human in a way that we can't really understand with our feeble minds. And, and he alone lived this sinless, perfect life. The glorious king who brings God's judgment also becomes the suffering servant who bears God's judgment. This is unique. Nobody thought of this. Nobody would have thought of this. This is coming from God. So Jesus became human and restore, came to restore this broken fellowship. And in order to do that, he was crucified and resurrected. And basically what he did was, in his crucifixion and resurrection, he built a bridge. He built a bridge over this unpassable gap, this chasm that separated us 
from God. He built that bridge through his own life and through his own death. And I, I don't think we can get around this, that he died as a substitute for us. He lived the life that we should have lived, but couldn't live, the holy and righteous life. And, and then he died the death that we should have died. He lived the life we should have lived, then he died the death we should have died, and through him our relationship can be restored with our Creator. There's no more separation. So, I don't know, you ever seen these army movies where uh, maybe some soldiers, they're, you know, with their platoon or their, their buddies or whatever, and, and they're, they're in the tent, and, and then somebody, some enemy throws a grenade in the midst of them. You've seen these in the movies. And then instinctively, one of them dives in and jumps on the grenade and, and gets blown up, but in the process saved his army buddies. And I don't know if you've ever seen that in movies. To me, it seems like a, a common scenario or something to that effect. And I was thinking about that, and, and what, what you would think is, well, we all deserve to die, but we didn't have to die because someone else died, right? Someone else made the ultimate sacrifice, and because they made the ultimate sacrifice, I now live. Now, if that ever happened to you, it probably won't, but if it ever happened to you, how would you feel toward that person who gave up their life? I mean, wouldn't you be like forever grateful? Uh, you know, and, and you, you wouldn't probably be thinking, man, they died before they got to pay me back that 20 bucks they owe me. What a bummer. Would you be thinking that way? You know, I, I don't think you would, right? Uh, I mean, somebody gave the ultimate sacrifice, gave their life for you so that you could live. I mean, wouldn't you be grateful? And, and wouldn't we want, I don't know, this is what happens in the movies, it seems to me like. After that, uh, the buddy who survives takes care of the family of the one who sacrificed themselves, right? You know, there's just, there's just love and gratitude, and, and life is changed because of that sacrifice. Well, I think in a way, we could think of that's what Jesus did for us, that, that there was a death that we deserved that was coming toward our, our way, and then he sacrificed himself so that we didn't have to experience it. Um, I think this quote is on, on the front page of your notes, but this is another quote from a different book by James Emery White. He says this, There's a single story pulsing through the Bible's pages. There is a God on the loose who created us, and despite our rejection of Him, He calls us back into a relationship with Himself. And the pinnacle of His effort is the coming of this God in the person of a first-century Jewish man named Jesus. To be sure, all of Christian faith rests on the person of Jesus. Where you stand in regard to Jesus is everything. You believe that? I believe that. I think that's the truth of God. I think that's the message of the gospel. It's not just, oh, there's a God and you just need to believe in God and God is, just wants you to be nice and be a nice person. Uh, there, there is a problem that we have that we can't overcome. We have a sin problem. We have a separation problem. We have a division problem. We're isolated from God. We cannot ever crawl our way back or work our way back. And we're separated not only from God, but from his purposes for our life. And, you know, there's this just tremendous tension. What's going to happen? Is there a way out? Is there a way forward? And this is what the Bible's telling us, is that there is, but it had to be all from God's side. God's initiative, that he sent his son, Jesus. And he's the only one that, that lived that perfect life. He's the only one that died that death so that we could now live. There's a single story pulsing through the Bible's pages. There's a God on the loose who created us, and despite our rejection of him, he could have written us off, but despite our rejection of him, he calls us back into a relationship with himself. 
and then he pays the price. He does everything needed and, and in order to win us back to himself by giving his son. So, that's the message, right? It's about God and about creation, and it's about people, and it's about what Christ has done, and now it's about our response. How do you respond to that? And, and this is the look at, if you look at your notes here, uh, the response, I must repent for my rebellion. I must repent for my rebellion. And repent just means that I'm going to turn around and uh, instead of going my way, I'm going to go God's way. Matthew 4.17 says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven has come near. In other words, you were going your way, now you make a 180 degree turn to go God's way. You repent. It's a change of mind, it's a change of heart that results in a change of life. Repent. We need to turn around. I must repent for my rebellion. Response, I must believe Christ died to provide forgiveness and a new life of fellowship with God. I must believe. I must believe. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who did receive him, it's talking about Jesus, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. That word right can be translated authority. To all those who believed in him, who received him, he gave the authority to be the children of God. Everybody does not have that authority. Everyone does not have that right. I respond, I must repent for my rebellion. I must believe in Christ that he died to provide forgiveness and a new life of fellowship. That's a gift. You can't work for a gift. You know, you can't say, oh, oh, you know, let me work and earn that gift. A gift is a gift. It's just given, right? You can't earn a gift. You can't work for it. But you know what you do have to do? You have to receive it. Now, when I was growing up, if UPS or somebody would deliver a package on your doorstep, if you weren't home, they wouldn't leave it there. They would leave you a little yellow slip or something. It says, we got a package for you and you've got to, you know, sign something if you want us to deliver it tomorrow or you've got to go to our office and pick it up or something. Now, I don't know about where you live, but where I live now, they just leave the package. I mean, I could be on vacation in Hawaii, but they would just leave the package, right? Uh, so there's a lot of trust in that, and I'm sure there's a lot of packages that get stolen as well. But, but let's say they didn't just leave the package, but going back to the old days, they left that little slip of paper. Okay? Say, you have received a package. We couldn't deliver it because no one answered the door. You weren't home. But if you want to receive the package, come and pick it up. Okay? Now, I may be lazy. I may be indignant. <laughs> But if I want the package, i got to go receive the package. Right? Now, that doesn't mean I did anything to earn it. I didn't deserve it. But I do need to receive it. Now, this is what the Bible is saying. It, those who believed in Jesus, who received him, he gave the right to be the children of God. And it's a gift. You can't earn it, but you do need to receive it. I must receive Christ as my Savior and Lord with the intent to obey him. I do this in prayer by inviting him into my life. I think you probably know this verse, Revelation 3.20, where Jesus is saying, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. Now you've got to understand something about the significance of that first century culture. To eat with somebody meant a lot more than, oh yeah, let's grab a bite sometime. 
To eat with somebody meant you're sitting down for a meal in fellowship. You don't eat with just anybody. When you, when you eat with somebody, you are saying through your actions, I accept you. It's an expression of friendship. Uh, if there's something between us, if I hadn't forgiven you, I wouldn't sit down and eat with you. So for, for me to eat with you means friendship, it means acceptance, it means favor, it means forgiveness. Now look again what Jesus says in Revelation 3.20. He says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. Right? Doesn't force his way in. He's not the burglar that breaks the door down. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. Now that's a choice, right? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them. Right? Friendship, favor, acceptance, forgiveness, fellowship. I will come in and eat with them and they with me. A response is required. It's not true that no matter what you believe or no matter what you do, you're going to go to heaven because everybody's going to go to heaven. It's not true that as long as you believe sincerely whatever you believe, that you're going to end up in the right place. It, you know, you can believe that, but it's just not true. It's like I could be saying, oh, I don't have an illness, I don't have an illness, but if I've got an illness, it doesn't change the facts. My disbelief doesn't change the facts. See, I think we need to get these truths right. We have to be clear uh, so that we can live our faith confidently, Right? so that we will invest in that relationship for the one who has done everything for us. Uh, we have to be clear so that we will be secure in our identity before God. I don't have to wonder, did he stop loving me because I sinned yesterday? We have to be clear in what we believe because our relationship with God depends on it, as well as our confidence, our security, our ability to love other people. We have to be clear because if we're not clear, we're not going to share it with anybody else. You know, you ever had somebody that expressed some interest in your faith or your beliefs, and rather than rejoicing inside, you just feel bad. You feel so nervous and a little upset because, you know, you don't know what to say and you don't know what you believe and you don't know how to express it. This is why we're having this series, A Faith Worth Sharing. Know what you believe. Know how to live it. Not perfectly, but know, know what it means to live a Christian life. Know why you believe. Know how to share it. I hope that you will give yourself, that we will all give ourselves to learning these four vital things. Because to be a disciple, to be a fruitful Christian, I've got to know this stuff, right? So here's what I want to suggest for you. If you've never given your life to Jesus, and maybe this is all making sense and it's starting to click for you now, I want to encourage you, first of all, uh, you, you need to make that commitment. You need to make that response. You need to repent for your rebellion and ask God's forgiveness. You need to believe that Jesus died from, uh, on the cross for you, that that sacrifice was effective for you and your sins, washed away your sins, and that he was raised from the dead. And you must receive Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. You sign up, in effect, to, to be his follower. What would be the cost? What would be the cost? Well, there was no cost to you. Your salvation comes to you freely by God's grace. This is really, really important because a lot of people, I've even heard people say, well, it all sounds good to me, but I just don't deserve it. And I'm thinking, that's the point, right? Yeah. Uh, look at this verse, uh, Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It's the gift of God. Hello, it's a gift. You can't earn it. Not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
Here's what I want you to think about. We are not saved by good works. You can never do enough good works to earn your salvation. But you are saved for good works. That's an important difference, isn't it? I mean, Christians are supposed to do good stuff, and we're supposed to feed the poor and fight injustice and have compassion for people and share the good news of Jesus and share generously of our resources and our time and our talents. We are supposed to do good works, but it has nothing to do with earning God's favor or earning salvation or deserving God's love or forgiveness. By grace are you saved through faith and not of yourself so that no one can boast. None of us have any reason to boast. None of us have any basis for boasting, but we can do this, can't we? We can receive it. We can receive it gratefully and humbly. And then it says we are God's workmanship. You know that word workmanship? It can be translated God's masterpiece. It could be translated God's work of art. You are God's work of art. You are God's poetry. You're his poem. God is the master artist, the master craftsman, and what he's created is you. And he's created you for good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. Uh, Not as a burdensome striving, not as duty and obligation, but in order to fulfill your purpose, that you would be connected with God so that you can fulfill his purpose and experience what he wants for you. There's no cost to you. Your salvation comes to you freely but it comes at a high cost to God. 1 Peter 1 says, You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. It comes freely to you. There's no cost, but it comes at a tremendous cost to Jesus who shed his blood on your behalf. Then ultimately your response is the, is the life of discipleship. And Jesus did. He called people to him and then he says, you know, I love you. I'm going to die for you. But if we're going to be in relationship, you've got to follow me. You've got to be with me. Here's what he said in Luke 9. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. And basically, uh, this is the cost. The cost is that you would give him yourself, that you would give him your life. You're not saved by good works, but you're saved for good works. And when you follow Jesus, you're willing to say no to yourself in order to say yes to him. We now belong to him, and we live to serve his purposes. Anything less is not really discipleship. Okay, well, that's it. Know what you believe. It's really vital that you know what you believe. God, people, Christ, response, cost. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to encourage you to take this handout, First Steps to God, and to review it and to look up every one of those passages. Would you do that? This is so important that you understand not just these points, but, but the scripture that backs it up and that gives substance to it and, and that really explains it to you. So, I would really encourage you to f- be familiar with this, to read it, to look up the scriptures, and have, a, have a, just a confidence that you can know what you believe so that you're clear 
and so that you can share it with others as well. This is the greatest story ever told, and it's a true story, and it needs to be shared. It's the story not of just of God, it's the story of the world, it's the story of you and me, and, and it's our story too. It's a story about creation, about how creation fell and got broken, and how creation and people get restored and redeemed and reconciled to God, and how God is making all things new. And he wants to do that for each of us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your truth, for your beauty. Thank you for the way that it all makes sense. Thank you that you are a God who has chosen to reveal yourself and your ways and your plans and that in your gracious generosity you've made it possible for each of us to know you, to be restored to relationship, to no longer be separate or alone. Thank you, Lord, that you've made it possible for us to live in your love and to begin to experience the life that you intended for us all along. Help us, Lord, to grow in our relationship with you and in our knowledge of you and in our confidence in this faith that we have. And I pray too, Lord, that this would not just be for us, but for those around us who need to know. Help us to know these truths, not just for ourselves, but to have such clarity about them that we could be confident in sharing with others. For this is the message of life. These are the words of life. And people need to know. So use us, we pray, to share your good news. In Jesus' name, amen.